Father, we, we do, do thank you and we bless you, Lord God, that we can gather in your name to worship you, to praise you, and to give you glory. For you indeed are great, great are you, Lord. And worthy of all praise, honor, and glory, God. And so, Father, we ask, God, that you would heed to your promise. Wherever two or three are gathered, you tell us that you are in our midst, Lord. And so, God, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you minister to your children? I pray, Lord God, that you would find fertile ground, the ground of our hearts, that the word, the seed would find a place that it would be implanted and that that seed would bring forth a harvest for your kingdom, even a hundredfold. And so bless this time, Father. The children are here. Open our ears to hear what you want to say, Lord God. Our eyes to see and our ears to heal. In Jesus' name, in all in agreement said, amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to those who are not able to come. Pray that you guys will heal quickly and that you'll be back to normal. We're in the book of Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to pick up where Pastor David left off at. It's good to be here again. For those of you who may not know me, um, who am I? Who am I? I am the pastor of a ministry called U-Turn for Christ. I'm with Calvary Chapel Lexington. U-Turn for Christ is a ministry uh, residential that houses men who struggle with addiction. And I've been a part of that ministry for, wow, this is June, it'll be 22 years. I'm getting old. Yeah. And not only am I a pastor of U-Turn for Christ, I'm also a product of U-Turn for Christ. The Lord used the ministry to save me from an addiction that I had for almost 30 years. And so, let's see, this June, no, I'm sorry, July, I will be celebrating freedom from that addiction for 19 years. So... I know I don't look a day over 30, but that's okay. All right. We are in chapter 11 this morning, and the context is that the tribulation has started, and the first two series of God's judgment upon the earth have occurred. We've seen the seven seals and the six trumpets have occurred, and the seventh trumpet, which is soon to be blown at the end of chapter 7. You don't turn there, but in chapter 1, verse 19 of Revelation, it says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's speaking of chapter 1. And this is uh, the Lord speaking to um, the Apostle John. Write the things which you have seen, chapter 1, and the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after these things. And that's chapter 4 through 22. And so that's where we're at. Um, now, that's a very natural outline of the book of Revelation. And so we're in the section of Revelation uh, where it says we are looking at the things which will take place. In other words, we're looking at the prophetic word of God as the Lord reveals the end times to us through his apostle John. And this time on earth will be like no other time in the history of the world, speaking of uh, the tribulation, which is what... Uh, we're going to be speaking about. Um, hold your place there. Turn to Matthew 24, 15. Just want to point out a couple of things. Matthew 24, verse 15 reads, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then drop down to verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now I want us to see something here. It says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Even in the midst of Almighty God pouring out his wrath on 
uh, God, excuse me, hating, Christ-rejecting church, I'm sorry, world, yet God shows his mercy. Even in the midst of the, uh, the tribulation, God shows his mercy. God shows his loving, kind, compassionate spirit. It says, unless God had chosen to shorten those days, there would have been nobody who had been able to stand. And so um, that's a word for you and I. No matter how crazy it gets in our life, God is always merciful. No matter how crazy it gets in the world, God is showing mercy because truth of the matter, be told there's nothing that needs to happen prophetic-wise in prophecy of Jesus Christ that the Lord can come back and just get us out of here. And I know some of us are saying, what? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, like hurry up. Hurry up. But the Bible also says God is not slack in his promise, as some think, but he doesn't want anyone to what? Perish. But what? Have eternal life. And so if you ain't saved, then you out there. Get saved so we go home. God is a merciful, loving, kind, and compassionate God, even in the midst of, of the great tribulation. And so here in chapter 11, we see three things going on. First of all, we see God telling the apostle John to measure his temple. Then we see the ministry of the two witnesses, and then we'll see at the end of the chapter, the seventh trumpet being blown, which is going to be announcing the last of God's judgments on the, the, uh, the earth. So let's jump in and see what the Lord wants to speak into our lives this morning. Again, Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, if you dare say amen. Then I was given a measuring rod like the staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations or to the Gentiles. They will trample the holy city, which is Jerusalem, for 42 months. And so the apostle John is given the commandment to rise and measure. John is instructed to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers, but not the outer court. He's to measure the holy place, and the holies of holies, but not the outer court, because it's been given to the nations, the Gentiles, to trample on for 42 months, or three years and a half. So why measure the temple? Why is um, John being given that commandment? Measurement depicts ownership and possession. In Ezekiel 40, the temple was measured and in uh, Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is measured. The temple is constructed during the first half of the tribulation so that Orthodox Jews can offer up sacrifices according to the Mosaic law. So there's going to be a temple during the great tribulation, and the Jews are going to build it. And so how many of you guys heard of uh, uh, temple, uh, temple Institute? Anybody heard of that? There's a, a group of uh, Orthodox Jews in Israel that are making preparations for the building of the third temple. And they've got all the things, the utensils that they need. And rumor has it that they even have the Ark of the Covenant somewhere hidden underground. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's a rumor. And so they have all the things that they need. And so they're just waiting for the time to build the temple, but they can't do that now. Why? What's on the, the, the temple mount now? The rock, the dome of the rock, right? The, the, the temple where, or the synagogue, I'm sorry, the temple where the Muslims go to worship. And so if the Jews tried to build the temple now, what would happen? Holy war. Holy war. That's why the scriptures is pointing to going back to uh, verse 2, but do not measure the court outside the temple, leave it out, for it is given over to the nations. That's where the, uh, uh, the, the Jew, I'm sorry, the um, Muslims worship. And so for right now, the uh, holy place where the temple will be built is being used as a place of worship for the Jews. And so he's saying don't measure the outer court just measure 
the holy place and the holy of holies. And so they're going to be able to build their temple. And this is how it's going to happen. The Antichrist is going to come on the scene. He's going to be a great world leader. And he's going to prove his greatness, among other things, by being able to broker peace between the Jews and the Muslims. And that's when they will be allowed to build their temple on the mount. Yet at the end of that first three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to renege on his promise to the Jews, and he's going to commit what's known as the abomination of desolation. Go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Daniel 9, verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This is speaking of Jesus' crucifixion. And the people of the prince who was to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined, 27. And he, speaking of the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will stop, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, speaking of the Jews as they're offering up these sacrifices in the temple. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on one who makes desolate. Turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let no one in any way deceive you. This is Paul telling the church in Thessalonica about the lawless one or the Antichrist. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, speaking of the Antichrist, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And so the Antichrist is going to go into the temple of the Jews and he's going to declare himself God. He's going to want everybody to bow down to him and to worship. Doesn't this remind you of another individual that did the same thing? Who? Lucifer, where? In Isaiah chapter 14, right? He said, I will, I will, I will. He wanted to exalt himself above Almighty God. And so this will usher in the second half of the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. This is when literally all hell will break loose. And so we see that the temple will play an important part even in the tribulation. In verse um, 3. Now we'll see the three witnesses. I will grant authority to my witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So now we're introduced to these two witnesses, these two prophets. And the first thing that we see is that they will be given authority by God Almighty to witness to the earth for three and a half years. And then we see that they are clothed in sackcloth. That, that picture of being clothed in sackcloth is about repentance. And so their ministry will be a ministry of repentance. They'll be preaching a word of telling the earth to repent and turn to God. And that's very similar to who? who had that same ministry where he was on the earth saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist. And so their ministry is going to be very similar to John the Baptist in that he's telling, they're telling the earth to repent of their sin and turn to the true living God. And then in uh, verse uh, 4, we see that they are likened to two olive trees and two lampstands. Go to Zechariah chapter 4. Again, there's a picture of this in Zechariah that is quite similar. Zechariah chapter 4. We see the same analogy, figurative speech. 
Zechariah 4, 1 says, And the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me. As a man who was awakened from his sleep, he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of gold, and its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it. Verse 3, also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking to me, saying, What are these things, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So context of the scripture, Zechariah, is that the Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, first of all, to build a defense, but now Zerubbabel is in charge of building back the temple, which they never did. But the idea is that the picture of these two lampstands and the olive trees on either side, it's the idea that the olive trees and the lampstands will be the light, a shining witness. Let your light shine in such a way that people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so the picture of these two witnesses is a picture of their light shining as a witness. And then the olive trees in the Old Testament particularly always many times a picture of what? The Holy Spirit. And so you've got these two olive trees on either side connected to the, uh, the lamp. And so what it's saying is there will be a continual flow of oil to these lampstands. In other words, there will be a continual flow of the Holy Spirit into these prophets supernaturally so that they can do what? Be a witness. So that they can witness. So not only are they going to have authority from God, they will have supernatural power from God to witness. And in the book of Acts, in the first chapter, the Lord Jesus told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit come upon you, you shall be my what? Witnesses. In order to witness for my God, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? Particularly in this day and age. More and more, not just the world, this country is coming against evangelical Christianity. More and more, you and I are becoming an individual with a target on our back. And so if we're going to stand firm in this world and witness for the Lord Jesus Christ of which he's given us all that commission, then we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 5, it goes on to say, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is to be killed. They have the power to shut the, the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And as I was reading this, I'm sorry, God forgive me, but it's like they got the ability to have fire coming out of their mouth. How cool would that be? I'm on I-20. I'm coming to I-26. Y'all know it. Malfunction Junction. Get out the way. What? <sighs> y'all laughing because y'all know what I'm talking about, huh? I'm sorry. I'm not from around here. I'm from L.A. Y'all don't know how to drive out here. Get out the way. So not only do they have the power given to them, but they've also been given what? I'm sorry, the, the authority they've been given, the power by God to take care of their foes. Fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. Power to stop the rain, to shut up the, the, the sky, to turn water to blood, strike the earth with all sorts of plagues. It's because of these characteristics that many scholars believe that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Now, we can't be dogmatic about that because it doesn't say some even think uh, that these individuals could be uh, Enoch also with Moses. And because we'll see 
that as soon as their work is done, they're translated out of the earth. They're called to come up. Can't be dogmatic, but very interesting to say the least. So we see uh, the description of the two witnesses, their authority. Uh, we see how they're clothed, their ministry. We see the power that God gives them. And now we're going to see uh, their death. Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, that's the Antichrist, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, the great city of Jerusalem, that symbolically is called Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Lord was crucified. And so in verse 7 it says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up out of the bottomless pit, and he makes war on them, and he conquers them, and he kills them. Notice that it wasn't until the work was completed that the Lord gave um, the enemy the ability to conquer and then ultimately kill them. That's the principle for you and I. God has called each and every one of us to do a work, amen? God has called all of us to do something. We're not on vacation, church. We're not. We're supposed to be doing things for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. He has given us gifts and talents to use for that. And if you're walking in the calling that God has called you to, walking in his will for your life, and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will not perish until whatever God's called you to do is completed. I'll say that again. If you're walking in the calling and the power of the Holy Spirit, that God has called you to, that he's equipped you to, you will not perish until God's work is completed, until his will is accomplished in your life. Go to Romans chapter 12. Verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, what the will of God is. And so if you want to know what the will of God is for your life, very simple. Sacrifice yourself. It says present yourself as a living and holy sacrifice, right? That's kind of a um, contradiction of, of wording because the sacrifices were not living. They didn't put live animals on the altar, right? They did what? They put dead animals on there. But the word of God here in, in Romans 12 is saying present yourself as a living sacrifice. So what is that telling us to do? Well, Jesus says, if you do not deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be what? can't be a disciple. You can't be one of mine. And so what the Word of God is saying is, in order for me to find out what God's will is for my life, I've got to die to self. I've got to die to self. Not my will be done, but whose will? Your will be done, Lord. Your will be done. And notice what it says in, in Romans. Let me... In, in, uh, uh, I just, I just got, got to point, point this out. out. At, At the end, end of verse 1, it says, By the mercy of God, to present your, live, your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Another verse says, which is your reasonable service of worship. Reasonable. What's that saying? It's, it's only reasonable in light of all that God has done for us to present ourselves as a sacrifice. That's what it's saying. It's only reasonable. So don't feel like God is asking a whole bunch of you because he's asking you to put him first in everything else. Like, oh, God, well, I got all the stuff I got to do, and you just don't understand, and my life, and this, and that. Uh, it's hard. No, God is saying, look, in light of all I've done, it should be easy. Because without me, you have what? Nothing. And apart from me, you what? Can't do anything. So it's reasonable for us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. It should not be a burden. In 
And so these individuals, after they finish their testimony, after their ministry, their mission has been complete, then the Lord allows the enemy to win. And then they are killed. And then in verse 8, it says that the dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and, uh, sorry, Sodom and Egypt. Now, the great city is talking about is Jerusalem. Now, I want you to see how corrupt Jerusalem has become. First of all, how corrupt is it to allow dead bodies to lay in the streets? That's pretty heinous. I mean, if, if there's a, a dead puppy on the side of the, the road or in the middle of the street, most people, not everybody, most people will stop and get out and pull the animal to the side. That word symbolically, in my version, I'm reading from the New American Standard, that word in the original language literally means spiritually. So what it's saying is, is that and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom because of the sexual perversion that apparently is going on. And Egypt because of the persecution of God's people that is going on. So the city that God places his name on, Jerusalem, has turned into a corrupt place. And the bodies again will lie in the streets for three and a half days. And, and to add to the corruption of the people, look at what it says in verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Man, how hard must your heart be if you see somebody die and then rejoice? Not, Not only are they rejoicing, they're making merry. That word making merry means to be delighted. And not only are they rejoicing and delighted, but it also says what? They're exchanging gifts. Now, how crazy is that? It's almost like they're celebrating a satanic Christmas, right? Exchanging gifts because someone has died. And so the question is, why the celebration? Why are they so rejoicing and so celebratory because of the death of these two individuals? Well, at the end of verse 10, it tells us, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That word torment literally could be translated tortured. They were being tortured. They were being tortured. Tortured how? By the word of God. Because that's all they were doing, right? The word of God. They were preaching the word of God. Now, in some ways, I can relate to this because I can remember my days B.C., before Christ. I got, I got saved at a, a later age uh, in my life. I was almost 50. But as a kid growing up in Los Angeles back in the 60s, there used to be street corner preachers with megaphones in the city of L.A. And their message was generally uh, hellfire and brimstone. Turn and burn. And as a young lad, you know, running in the streets of L.A., we used to make fun of them. Sometimes even throw rocks at them. And sometimes, as I got older, I would pass by, and I would be on my way to do something, and I would hear this message, and I'd start to get angry inside, and I didn't know why. Like the hair on the back of my neck would stand. Yeah, there was a time when I had hair. The hair on the back of my neck would stand. And I get angry, and I never knew why. Because the word of God has that, that penetrating power to bring conviction on a man or a woman. I ain't trying to hear what you're saying. And so, literally, they were being tormented 
by the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's the word you and I today, right? Now, this, now, this is during a time, time, remember, this is during a time when the Lord is using them for three and a half years to proclaim His goodness, His love, His, his, his majesty, His grace, His mercy, His, his compassion to a world that sin. Uh, one judgment after another, people dying by the hundreds of thousands, millions, and they're getting angry because all they're doing is telling them to, man, I got a way out for you. There's someone who loves you more than you'll know. If you just turn to Him, He'll. And they, and they didn't, didn't like that. that. That's, that's torture. torture. So that's, that's a word for you and I today, today right? We're, we're, we're nowhere, nowhere near, although we might be coming close soon. But we're, we're nowhere near the great tribulation in today that we're living in. But it's crazy out there. And people don't want to hear about Jesus Christ with all the craziness that's going on. But remember, the, the, the two witnesses, the two prophets were empowered. They were given authority. You and I have been given that authority. We're to go and make disciples. That's what the Lord said, right? Preaching, teaching them all the things that I've shown you, and the Lord will be with you always. So God's with us. We've got the authority. We've got the power. But we're not going to always be met with a, oh, come on in and sit down. Let me hear what you got to say. We might be met with a little bit more than that. Maybe a few choice words. But don't let that discourage you. Because God has called us to be those witnesses. So they, they, are torment, they were tormented, and they were very, very grateful and happy and rejoicing that the witnesses had perished. Verse 11. Now we'll see the resurrection of these two witnesses. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and the enemies watched them. So for three and a half days, as the body laid in, in the middle of the street, and the whole world was rejoicing, there came a time when God blew life back into them, and they were awakened. And the enemies see this. Now, can you imagine that? With all the access that we have in this day that we're living in to worldwide news, can anybody say CNN? Can anybody say MSNBC? Can anybody say Fox News? Well, we see things occurring all over the world. Can you see the world where, you know, people are sitting at their table eating their cornflakes or their Rice Krispies, and they got the news on, and, you know, somebody's reading the paper, and then they hear the newscast say, oh, my! And then the camera catches them as they are translated into heaven. How crazy will that be? And so the two witnesses ascend into heaven. But along with that, what else happens? Verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed. In the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the Lord. And so they ascend to heaven on a cloud. And as they are doing that, there is this great earthquake. Now, as I indicated, I'm from Los Angeles. I've lived through a couple of earthquakes. Anybody else in here been through an earthquake? I'm talking, no, I ain't talking about one of those where you kind of I'm talking about a serious one. How you feeling? Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. And it, especially if it ain't stopping, where, where, where the ground is undulating, right? And you're getting tossed to and fro and things are falling from uh, the shelves. That's no joke. So imagine an earthquake that is so great that it causes 7,000 people to, to die. That's a serious earthquake. So as they're watching them, Translated, ascending into heaven, there's this great earthquake. 7,000 people are killed, and everybody's terrified. And then at the end of verse 13, it says, And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the Lord. Hmm. Gave glory to the Lord. It doesn't say that they bowed down and worshiped, does it? It didn't say that they. They praised him and they lifted up their hands. And they was, it says what? They gave glory to the Lord. 
And my point is this, is that I can't be dogmatic and say that, well, that doesn't mean that they were saved. Maybe some were. The text doesn't really say that, but I know this to be true. Fear doesn't always work for someone who's trying to get their life together because I'm one of those ones. Fear didn't drive me to the Lord in the beginning. A number of series of things that happened caused that. And so being in the ministry of U-Turn for Christ and, and what I've been doing for years, I've had encounters with individuals who have had all kinds of things happen to their lives where any reasonable thinking person would say, do you have a death wish? What's going on with you? Why do you keep doing this over and over and over again? Because fear of itself will not keep a person in Christ. So what's the thing that will normally bring a person to have a close, intimate relationship with the Lord? It's because of his kindness that leads us to repentance. Amen? And so, so if you've got, got a friend, a family member, someone that's close to you that doesn't know the Lord, that's got one foot on a banana peel and the other one in the grave, and the devil's just waiting to push him over, if you've got that individual, continue to be kind to him. Continue to love him. We don't okay sin. I'm not going to okay your sin. If you sin, I'm going to let you know. But I'm going to let you know that there's a loving God in heaven who can not only take away the penalty of your sin, but can translate you into a different place and give you a better life. Amen? It's because of God's kindness that led me to repent. And so in verse 7, we get uh, to where we'll see the seventh trumpet being blown. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. The seventh trumpet and loud voices proclaim that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord. This is pointing to the soon return of Christ and for him setting up his kingdom on this earth. The millennial kingdom. In other words, even though it hasn't happened, the end is near. It's near enough that we can do that and we can announce that. And notice the two different reactions to this trumpet blowing and the word being proclaimed that the Lord's kingdom is soon to come. Verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their throne before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So that's the first reaction. The elders in heaven fall on their face, and they worship, and they give thanks to the Lord. The Lord is coming back. He's setting up his kingdom to reign. And they are rejoicing and giving praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Question. Is that your response? Whenever you think about the return of Christ? Because it's coming back soon, right? Soon or very soon. The return of Christ is imminent. He could come right now. There's nothing that needs to happen prophetically for the Lord to return. So in the midst of this craziness that's going on on the earth, we hear the seventh trumpet blow, which points to the soon return of Jesus Christ, and the elders do what? Man, they fall on their face, and they worship. Man, thank you, Lord. And they give thanks to God. That's a word for somebody in here, because I know it's difficult and it's tough in these times that we live in. But just take time to separate yourself from all the chaos in your life and spend a little time before the Lord and recognize that he's coming back soon. Amen? Just return is soon. Just return is soon. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica concerning those who have gone before. He says, I don't want you to mourn as those who have no hope. 
Christians are not supposed to be moping on this earth. Because if we are, and we're supposed to be the light and the salt of this world, if you call yourself a Christian and I'm not, and I see you moping around, man, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want what you got. We're supposed to be salt. Salt makes a person what? Thirsty. When they see a lie, they're supposed to say, man, I like that. Man, that just happened to you. You just lost your mom. You just lost your, your daughter from crib death. And you're your one, but I can see something different in you. What is that? Because we know that our Lord and Savior is going to return. But if he doesn't, and I perish, and I go with him. So they rejoice. They worship, they fall on their face, and they give thanks. But notice the contrast. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, and the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the world. So those who were in heaven, the, the 24 elders worshipped, but the nations did what? They were enraged. Hmm. People don't want to be under the reign of the Lord. The announcement is made. The kingdom of the earth, the kingdom of the world, is now the kingdom of who? Christ. The elders are grateful. Man, we can live under a theocracy for real now. But the nation, the Gentiles, are what? They're angry. Why? Because they don't want to be ruled by the king. That's it. That's it. That's it. So when somebody is having a hard time being very rebellious, stubborn about um, listening to, turning to, getting saved, there's a lot of different reasons that cover up the one truth. And you know what that one truth is? I don't want to be under the authority of Jesus Christ, of, of God. That's it. Now, there might be different reasons, and it can be cloaked in all kinds of different things, but the truth of the matter is, I don't want to be told what to do by nobody. And we're seeing that today in our society with all the stuff that's going on. And I'm not going to use God's um, pulpit as a political platform, but we see it. People are protesting. I should have a right to do whatever I want. The truth of the matter is, none of us have a right. And so the nations raised, they were enraged at this announcement. And then also we see that there will be judgment. Judgment for the dead and rewards for the servants of the Most High God for the saints. And then finally in verse 19, and this is so cool. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So we get through chapter 11, and all of that craziness has happened. Um, the witnesses are killed there. Uh, risen again, we see uh, the nations enraged. And then to close out the chapter, the Lord gives the Apostle John a great picture of heaven. And it says, the temple in heaven is open, and then the first thing that is seen is what? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was seen in this temple. The Ark refers to God's throne, the place where the previously mentioned resolution will come. It is called the Ark of His Covenant. In the Old Testament, this was the earthly representation of God's throne to emphasize God's faithfulness. The Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's faithfulness in bestowing grace on His people and in inflicting vengeance on His people's enemies. So when the heaven is opened and John the Apostle is able to see 
of the, the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, and he's given a reassuring sign. That the faithful God who sits on the throne, who still reigns, is going to avenge the enemies of his children. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hell. The great and awesome phenomena at the opening of the temple and the revelation of the ark show that the presence of God is there. Remember back in Exodus chapter 19? When, when the, the nation, nation of Israel, Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai and the Lord's presence was on the top and there was this voice that would come booming out and thundering and, and it was so, so spectacular that the Israelites said what to Moses? Oh Lord, you go up there and talk to God. We don't want to have nothing to do with that. And so it shows the presence of God in the temple. But that's, that's a, a reassuring picture for you and I. The God's, God's on the throne, throne and he's reigning. reigning. If, you, if, if you, you don't leave out of here with, with anything, leave out of here with that. that. No matter, matter what's going on in your world, somebody else's world that you know, your children's world, somebody that you love, co-worker, no matter what, God is still reigning. He's still, still on the throne. throne. And if, if you, you have, have any doubts, doubts open your Bible to the book of Psalms. In the, the book of Psalms, it says continually what? The Lord what? The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He has not given up his throne. He has not abdicated his authority to anyone else. He's still there. Amen? Final thoughts. We're living in times of uncertainty today. Would you agree? Can I get an amen? Yeah. God, uh, good, good is evil, and evil, evil is good. good. I, just I just saw a story yesterday, and I read it, from, from a columnist, an opinion, opinion columnist, who's with MSNBC, railing about how homeschooling is racist. I mean, serious. Homeschooling is racist. A little, little tidbit, tidbit for you guys. guys. My, My wife homeschooled our children. children. I, guess I guess I'm racist. racist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, Pastor. Pastor. <laughs> I mean, homeschooling is racist, and this is what she said. It is part of an extreme evangelical war to dismantle public schools. That's, That's what, what I, I did. did. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Has, Has it, anyone kept, kept up with the public schools? Not, not necessarily here, but, but in, in the liberal, liberal cities. Has anybody, anybody kept up with them? them? You know you how bad they teach teaching our children? children? The, the percentile of, of even being able to read at grade level is, is absolutely ridiculous. But the answer to that, that is to do what? Pour more, more money. money. Give, Give them more money. money. See, if, See, if you, you give more money, money nah. the, the reason, reason that people are turning to homeschool is not because of anything to do with dismantling public schools. People are beginning to realize, even here in South Carolina, the ideology and the indoctrination that they're trying to pour into our children. That's the reason why. All that, All that is good in this country is being threatened. Our freedom, our rights, our ability to worship freely. But just as the Apostle John was given a vision of Jesus in his temple, the art depicting the very presence of God, pointing to the Lord sitting on his throne, so we too know that even in the midst of what we're going through as a people, as, As a country, country the Lord is still reigns. Let's, Let's close, close with this. Turn to, to Psalm 97. Psalms 
Psalm 97, beginning in verse 1. The Lord, what? I can hear you. The Lord, what? He reigns. Let the earth, what? Rejoice. Thank you, Lord. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Who make, make their boasts and worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Verse 8. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 11, light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And we can rejoice, Lord, knowing that you do reign, that you're still on the throne, and that we have nothing to fear. Lord, you've paid the penalty. Price is paid. Paid in full, it is finished, and we rejoice in that. But in the midst, Lord God, in the meantime, I pray that you would strengthen your bride, your church, your children, to continue, Lord God, as we walk in the will of your power for our lives, Lord, that you equip us to be salt and light, to be those, Lord God, that are still proclaiming the excellencies of the one who saved us. We thank you, God, and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.